let's hear this portion of God's story as is found in Revelations 21, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water, and without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, the word of the Lord. When you think about heaven, uh, what do you think about? What comes to mind? Uh, I think there's, of course, the uh, exaggerated ideas about things like becoming an angel or floating on a cloud with a harp. Uh, sure, some of those things might come to mind. Um, and there might be some who imagine it that way. But even beyond some of those exaggerated ideas, I wonder, what do you think about when you think about heaven? And I would also just say, uh, you know, there's a lot of claims that are out there uh, about those who maybe went to heaven, they came back, they write a book, they sell millions of copies uh, about what they experienced. Um, I will just say, from a Christian perspective, um, rarely are those uh, books and the experiences rooted in anything biblical. They often do reflect much more of a cultural imagination of what heaven is to be. Um, but I do wonder... If we set aside cultural descriptions and cultural assumptions, what do we have left in our imagination? And I ask this because more than likely, a lot of us would probably struggle to actually come up with an answer. It's hard to describe what heaven is. It's interesting to me that across all major world religions, there is some kind of theology around heaven, and yet it's still so hard to pinpoint exactly what heaven will be like. Because heaven, in my view, is actually beyond what we could possibly fathom and understand and imagine, that it actually far exceeds our imagination, especially when we consider how the New Testament talks about heaven. Now, if you've been with us, we've been in uh, the middle of an Advent series where we have been embracing this season of Advent by essentially doing what the church has done for centuries. Uh, essentially, the church, uh, this season rather, is an opportunity for the church to look back to when Jesus came the first time. But it's also an opportunity for us to look ahead to when he will one day return. And what Advent does is that it, it binds us together with the followers of Yahweh across literal generations for millennia. 
the people of God have yearned for the long-awaited Messiah, the Messiah that we now know to be Jesus. And while we are on the other side of his first coming, the people of God today, like the people of old, still yearn for the coming, the return of Jesus. And here's why we look back and look ahead at the same time. So as we cling to the hope of what is to come, we have the benefits of being rooted, uh, of that hope being rooted in the faithfulness that God has already shown. Now, if you know Israel's history, it was similar for them. One of the main reasons why the Jewish people uh, in past history, but also today, one of the main reasons for the the, uh, celebration of the Passover was just this idea of having their hope rooted in God's previous faithfulness. See, what the Passover was, it was a reminder of how God was faithful to the Jewish people when they were in bondage in Egypt. And it's a reminder to them that because of the blood of the Lamb, which you can read about uh, in Exodus about this uh, Passover time, God protected his people from the angel of death that swept through Egypt, and eventually he led the Jewish people out of bondage, liberating them. And they, so that because of this, they celebrate the Passover as a way of saying, just as God was faithful to deliver us in the past, so he will also be faithful to deliver us into the future. His promises in the future are sure. Now that was for the Jewish people of ancient past, But this is exactly the same thing that we're doing today, because there was another Passover that would come. It would be a day when the sinless Lamb of God, who we now know to be Jesus, would shed his blood in order to liberate his people so that now we too can say, just as in the past, that God was faithful in the past and so we can cling to the hope that he will be faithful to his promises into the future. Okay. Sorry, all that sounds a lot like a Jesus point at the end of the sermon. I started there. Um, But I wanted to give us context for why it matters that we celebrate this Advent season, that we look ahead. It's worthwhile to consider what God promises is to come and why we can cling to the hope that it will actually come to pass. And so with all of that said, again, I do wonder, What has shaped our understanding of what is to actually come one day when Christ returns? What is it that shapes our thinking about this place called heaven? What I want to do for the next little while together is I want to take a look at what the New Testament shows us and tells us about what is to come. I want us to have our vision set toward the future promises of God, the things that he promises are to come, and I want to do that by looking at a really stunning passage, one of the more stunning passages in the Bible found here in Revelation 21. Um, Essentially what's happened, chapter 19, we see the return of Jesus. In chapter 20, we see that Satan has been defeated. And now here in 21, we get a picture of what now is to come and why it matters is it gives us a whole new understanding of what it means for Emmanuel, God with us, to be with us both now and forever. So let's understand this by looking at this passage, by looking at uh, several things. One, let's look at the context of the passage. Uh, Two, we'll look at the content of the passage. And then we'll look at the call of the passage. 
I'm sorry, those are really lazy sermon point titles. Um, it was Christmas week and I just didn't care to get creative. So, uh, the context of the passage. Uh, so if you've been with us, you know that we've been in the series. We've largely been in the Gospel of Matthew in our series. Uh, Revelation, however, was not written by Matthew. It was written by the Apostle John. Uh, and it's safe to say that Revelation is probably the most intriguing, but also the most perplexing and misunderstood book in the entire Bible. Uh, largely because in modern times, we just do not have the categories for understanding its genre of literature. Uh, essentially, I, I don't have time to get into a deep dive of Revelation, but essentially, let it just suffice to say uh, that Revelation is a very specific kind of genre called um, um, apocalyptic literature. It's a type of literature that we don't find uh, very much in the Bible. It was actually very popular during the time of Scripture, when Scripture was written, um, but we don't have a whole lot of it in the Bible. We really only have apocalyptic literature in Revelation, uh, and then also the second half of Daniel in the Old Testament. Uh, and so because it is so rare within the Bible, it's actually hard for us to know what to do with it in the context of the Bible. So here's just a couple important things. Should you ever be reading through Revelation, a couple important elements about apocalyptic literature. Number one, it is highly symbolic as a way of evoking emotion in its readers. And it's highly symbolic for the people of a certain time period. So the symbols in Revelation often don't make, uh, only fully and completely make sense to the original audience. It can be difficult for us to try to understand what is being communicated in those images simply because we're so far removed from that context. Uh, we have very little basis for understanding a lot of those symbols. And so I would say all that just to say it's important that we're careful when we are approaching uh, the images of Revelation to not try and connect them or correlate them too much with modern-day events. There's been a lot of attempts to do that, and it tends to not always be completely um, in line with what John is trying to communicate. Um, but what John is attempting to do is evoke emotion. And if you read through the book of Revelation, you find that to be the case. Now, it's also important to know that this letter was actually, it was a letter written to a persecuted church. During this time period, there was a great and terrible persecution that had befallen Christians. Uh, they were being arrested and tortured and murdered by the state. Uh, there, was awful, there was awful, terrible times for the early church. And even though Revelation, if you've ever read it, it doesn't, seem like it's a, a book designed to give hope. Uh, that's exactly what this book, what this letter was designed to do. The early church read this letter and found so much hope that even in the midst of terrible persecution, the church grew and expanded. Now, why did that happen? Well, it was because Christians read this letter and this passage about evil being destroyed about Christ returning and being a victor over evil and the restoration of all things to come. And when they read those words, no evil empire could squash their fervor. No violence or threat of death could take from them uh, that which Christ had accomplished. And so they clung to it with great hope. And so these words provided hope for people in terrible times, and I hope that we're going to discover that this also provides us hope 
in the midst of whatever circumstances we may find ourselves in, especially considering that many of the circumstances we might find ourselves might pale in comparison to the kinds of things they were suffering through. So that's the context. Let me give you now the content. What is actually being described here in Revelation 21? Uh, There's numerous places in the New Testament that give us a picture of heaven. Uh, But here, Revelation 21, while it doesn't give us super tangible details about what to expect, I think this passage gives us the most succinct presentation of heaven's nature and its substance. And when combined with other things throughout the New Testament, I think we get a pretty stunning glimpse of what is to come. And it's a glimpse, it's a, it's a picture that I don't believe any other world religion or philosophy can possibly muster or compare to. And I want to show you this by drawing out uh, four um, verses in particular here in this passage to give this description. First, look at verse 1. The first thing that it says is that the first heavens and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Let me pause there for a second. Now, what does it mean that there is no more sea? Well, all throughout the Bible, whenever you see the sea being described, it's always being used to describe chaos and uncertainty and even fear. I mean, think about it. Uh, even today, there are those who would argue that we, mo- we know more about space than we do about the ocean. And so how much more would that have been the case for ancient people? There was so much uncertainty about what the sea was. So often the sea represented death. And so what we see here in verse 1 is that there would be no more sea, which means that there'll be no more chaos, no more uncertainty. It will be the end of such things. Look at verse 2. The second thing is uh, here in verse 2 is that it says, um, in the end, there will be a holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down, uh, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, isn't that interesting, curious? Because isn't heaven supposed to be a place that we go to for eternity? Isn't it supposed to be some place on the edge of the universe where God lives? You know, that, that, that thought reminds me of 50 plus years ago when the first Russian cosmonauts went out into space, they famously looked out into space and said, we looked and looked and looked, but we didn't see God. That's the assumption that has always been held, that God somehow exists out in outer space somewhere. And yet the New Testament does not present heaven as some eternity in some distant unknown place, some ethereal dreamland up in the sky somewhere. Rather, eternity is a city that, not that we go to, but that comes here to us. Plus, as, um, as urbanites, those here in a city, let us not miss that God's creation, it does begin in a garden, but thanks be to God, it ends in a city. Um, I, as I read that, I'm thrilled that for eternity, I don't have to live in a garden. It's going to be in the city I don't do nature well, uh, forgive me. But for you nature lovers, if you read uh, chapter 22, there is a river that runs through the city, uh, and there are also trees that run through that city, so you'll get your nature. Uh, That reminds me 
of a statement that was made by an urban missionary, uh, Bill Crispin. He once quipped this. He said that the, the country is where there are more plants than people. The city is where there are more people than plants. And since God loves people much more than plants, he loves the city more than the country. (laughs) Amen to that. (laughs) Main takeaway, though, here from verse 2, is that heaven is not some distant, far-off place. Heaven, in some sense, is here, our current home. Look at verse 4, the third thing says that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, I don't think I need to unpack that too much, but can you wrap your head around a place where there's no more death? Can you wrap your head around a place where there's no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain? 1 Corinthians 15 gives another stunning description about what Jesus' resurrection means for people. Paul says that we receive bodies that will never die. So heaven is eternity and not some distant far-off place, nor is it some place where our souls are floating around in undefined space. No, we have physical bodies, real bodies that are not subject to death or to pain or decay. We will live lives that do not have mourning or crying. The last thing, look at verse 5. This is, for me, uh, the key to it all. It is the thing that we can cling to with the greatest hope one day when Christ returns. I pray that we fix our vision and our eyes on this, that our souls might be um, captivated by such a thing. Look at verse 5. It says that he who is seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. I want to unpack that a little bit. I am making all things new. I mean, that's essentially a summary of what God is doing. All things new. Eternity is not an escape to some distant place. Eternity is the restoration and renewal of this place. Right here. The experiences of this world renewed. And it's also interesting and important to look at this word new. Because our English word, new, doesn't do justice to what's actually being described here in this passage. I want to jump into a little bit of Greek. Forgive me for that, but for those of you who like it, this is for you. Uh, The word that's being translated new here is kainos, as opposed to another word that could be used, neos. Now, in some places, those, those two words can be used interchangeably, but there's a fundamental difference between those two words in the New Testament. So neos tends to be the word that we think of when we think of the word new. It signifies new in respect to time. So that which is recent, it's that which is young. This baby is neos, new. But kainos does not have to do with something being young or recent. When it says that all things are new, what it's saying is that God is not creating a new or a young world. Rather, kainos refers to the quality or a difference of nature when contrasted to the old. Another way to put it is freshness or refreshness, a renewing in a way that makes something qualitatively better. Now, why does that matter? I'll tell you why that matters. 
When God says, I am making all things new, he is saying, I am taking that which is currently subject to decay, and I'm going to make it fresh again. I am not destroying the world or starting a new one. I am remaking, renewing, restoring this one. And understand, this newness is not just limited to humanity, but rather all of creation. I find it so intriguing, Paul's statements in Romans 8, where he says that all creation, that creation itself will be set free from the bondage of decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of of God. In other words, the freedom given to God's people as a result of the work of Jesus will also set all of creation free as well. All of creation is bound to decay. National Geographic um, last year had published a study done by a couple physicists uh, who predicted that the universe will cease to exist in about five billion years. Um, I'm always amazed at how people's brains work that come up with these kinds of things. Um, Now, that, that number is neither here nor there for me, really, except just to say, even in the sciences, we recognize that all of creation is decaying. It's all collapsing in on itself. It will all one day die out and disappear. But see, God's purpose in Christ is to reverse that once and for all, so that there is no longer decay. Another thing that I find interesting about that statement, look at the sentence structure. The way that it reads is not, I will make all things new, but rather he, is saying, he says, I am making all things new. This is an ongoing thing that's happening even now. In some way that I can't fully understand, The renewal of all things is happening right now, and it started in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the restoration of his people for those who trust in him. I mean, this current renewal, that God is doing something right now, has huge implications, I think, for us. I mean, we've talked about this before, but the work of Jesus is not just the salvation of individuals. It is no less than that. But the work of Jesus is also about cosmic restoration. And that ought to impact the way we live in this world even now. N.T. Wright, who's a very influential New Testament scholar, uh, recently wrote a piece for Time magazine called, The New Testament Doesn't Say What Most People Think It Does About Heaven. Uh, This just came out a couple weeks ago. I highly recommend Googling it. You should read it. It's short. so good. But in, this, uh, in that article, uh, he is unpacking a bit the idea of cosmic restoration. And this is what he said. And the, uh, the quote is there in your bulletin on the front. If you'd like to, it's a little bit of an extended quote, so I want to make sure you had it. But this is what he says. He says, if the point is to save souls from the wreck of this world so they can uh, leave and go to heaven, why bother to make this world a better place? But if God is going to do for the whole creation what he did for Jesus in his resurrection to bring them back here on earth, then those who have been rescued by the gospel are called to play a part right now in the advance renewal 
of the world. Christian mission includes bringing real advanced signs of new creation into the present world, in healing, in justice, in beauty, in celebrating the new creation, in lamenting the continuing pain of this world. He goes on to say that care for the poor and the planet then becomes central, not peripheral, for those who intend to live in faith and hope by the Spirit between the resurrection of Jesus and the coming renewal of all things. See, for the Christian, the idea that he is making all things new means that we get to participate in God's kingdom being fully and completely experienced until one day Christ returns and we experience it in its fullest. Now, all that said, about what is to come, about the coming of Jesus, this heaven and this description of heaven. If, again, if you've been with us, we know, you know that we've been in this Advent series, so you might be wondering, what does any of this have to do with Advent in remembering Emmanuel, God with us? Well, let me show you what that means, why it matters, by looking finally at the call of this passage. Uh, look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. What's so interesting about that? Not only is the new Jerusalem this restored creation in humanity, but in relation to Emmanuel, God with us, this restored world is where God dwells with his people. It is God with us in a way that we have never experienced before. You know, this reminds me of Genesis 3, where it says uh, that Adam and Eve, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, I don't know what that all means. There are a lot of opinions about what that is supposed to mean. However, the idea that God is walking in the garden. I mean, can you imagine a restored creation where he is walking this city? Can you imagine him being that close and that near? Can you imagine being in the presence of the physical, resurrected Jesus? You know, when we think Emmanuel, God with us, uh, from the, uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew, that is amazing and beautiful and so cool that God is with us even now. But this Emmanuel, God with us, is God with us in an unfettered, uh, non-cloaked, unambiguous way. But here's the rub, is that experiencing God in this way means something. It means that there is a divide right now between creation and God. But we don't have this beautiful and perfect union and closeness with him in the ways described here because we are divided. Heaven and earth will one day be restored and reunited but the reason why they currently are not is because of something else that happened in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we see that sin enters the world, that humanity falls. And ever since then, we have essentially rejected the premise of verse 7, that God is to be our God. I mean, we've, we've discussed this already throughout the service too often, there is this pursuit of other gods. There is this pursuit of other things to provide hope. And so because of that, it's created this divide. 
Now, if you were here last week, we considered the fact that we don't want a king. We don't want a sovereign ruler over our lives. Rather, we'd rather be masters of our own lives, be gods unto ourselves. And this desire to be God ourselves is embedded in this passage here, particularly in verse 8, because what it does is it shows us, verse 8 shows us those who will not enter into this new creation. It's important to draw this out. Verse 8 says, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, are the liars, that they will not enter into this new creation. Now, what does that mean? Well, look at all of it. Look at all the things being described. All of these examples are examples of those whose hearts and minds and hopes and desires are orientated to this world as it is. When our hearts are captivated and love the decaying world here, this becomes the divide that keeps us from being able to step into this new and restored world, for our affections are here, not for what is to come. But look at who is present in this new creation. Verse 6 says that it's those who are thirsty for for the water of life. Verse 7 goes on to say that those who are victorious. Now, we know that the one who is called the living water, the one who will cause you and I to never thirst again, we know that it's Jesus. We know that Jesus is the one who is described as a victorious king. Look at verse, or chapter 19 at some point. You read the description of what it means for him to come with power and with victory, where he overcomes Death and sickness wages war against them and wins. I mean, do you see that this new creation is for those who come to Jesus thirsty, knowing that they too often have tried to quench their thirst with the things of this decaying world. But this new creation is for those who know that they need this victorious king to defeat their true enemy of sin and death. The things that make this world decay, this new creation, is for those who hope and trust in what Jesus has done for them. And I would just leave you with this thought. You know, when I read verse 8, there's a tendency for me to read it and say, okay, well, if I want to be in the new creation, then I just won't be a coward, I won't murder, I won't be sexually immortal, immoral, I won't practice magic arts. That all sounds pretty easy to avoid. That then hopefully will get me into this heaven. But that's not what it's actually saying. It's actually saying that those things are a symptom of a much greater problem. The problem being that we don't actually trust and desire this new creation that is to come. Our eyes are too fixed on things of this world. And so God in his grace, he does not leave us in the midst of this dying and decaying world without hope. Instead, He steps into this world in his son, Jesus, in order to usher in this new creation. And so I encourage you to take your eyes off this world of decay, to place your eyes on the renewal that is coming, the renewal that is here, and put our hope and our faith and our trust in the one who is restoring that creation for those who desire uh, for their thirst to be quenched by this living water, the water of life, we will experience 
the fullness of what is to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for this beautiful and stunning description of what is to come. Uh, A world, uh, a place where uh, heaven and earth meet, where there is a renewal of all things, where we get to experience this world uh, in um, in a state that is not marred by the effects of sin, not um, marred by decay and death, but rather restored and renewed, a place where you dwell with your people. God, we, uh, in this Advent season, we look ahead with hope that that is what is to come, and we look to the past to see the ways that you have proven yourself to be faithful in the coming of your Son, that that truth might root our hope of what is to come deeply. So would you help us to fix our eyes on that coming day? In Jesus' name, amen.